Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, October 30th, 2016. The share ID for Friday, October 28th, is 9214. This morning, A Vision for You presents Fear, Unearthing the Foundations of Character Defects. The big book says that fear somehow touches about every aspect of our lives. Most people don't realize just how many fears they have or how much those fears dominate their thinking. Furthermore, these fears lie at the foundation of almost all our character defects. We have fears about our finances, our spouse, our job, our relationships, our children, the Internal Revenue Service, and so on. We have fear about what other people think of us and what they might do to us. Some of your fears will be rational, some irrational, some instinctive. When we have fear, the fear dominates our mind. Most of us find that fear is at the root of many of our damaging emotions and actions, as is the underlying basis of much of our motivation. The big book says that fear set in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve. The worst thing about fear is that, like resentment, it blocks us off from our higher power. The essence of what the 12 steps do for us is remove the things that block us from the higher power deep down within us. Joining us this morning to speak further on this topic is John Kay, a recovered compulsive overeater from California. John is devoted to living our 12-step way of life and dedicates much time to working with others and carrying this message of recovery. And it's with great joy to welcome John Kay. Thanks, John. Thanks, Leah. Uh, I'm John. I'm a compulsive overeater from uh, Los Angeles, and I want to thank Leah for asking me to speak this morning. Um, you know, I'm always a bit nervous as to whether or not I'll make any sense on these Sunday editions because it means I'm up at 5.30 in the morning, West Coast time. But uh, this time it's actually a little easier because I just got back from Europe earlier in the week, and I managed to stay on that schedule. So I, th- I think hopefully I'll be a little more, co- more coherent. Uh, it was a lot of fun being over there. I was actually in Ireland, ironically, for my 35th AA anniversary, which was apropos, I think, because uh, that's where the addiction gene got inserted into my DNA. And uh, uh, if there's any of the Ireland OA folks listening that I met, uh, it was really great meeting you. It's it's always fun to realize OA is you know really the same all over the world. And uh, so Leah told you um, uh, this is about fear and, and what's underneath the character defects, most of mine, which is fear. You know, uh, First, I want to preface in this talk two things. <clears throat> in previous talks I've had here, I, I've t- tended to handle the concept of a higher power mu- much like I do when I lead a retreat. You know, I try to drop down or back to the lowest common denominator on the subject, You know, especially for those who have yet to find a God of their own understanding or still not sure what they believe. But for this talk, I think I will be speaking a little bit more from a place of faith in a higher power. Uh, but, but like all references to God and higher power in our program, it is one of your understanding, right? It's, it's, it's a power greater than yourself that will help you with your problem. you know. And for the sake of this talk, I'll use the word God and higher power, and they're simply placeholders, as you know, to denote whatever works for you. Uh, 
Secondly, I'm going to talk about character defects. And I'm not really a big fan of that phrase. Uh, I think it's a little too pejorative. You know, the word defect sort of is imbued with a certain amount of judgment, you know. I personally like character liabilities. Uh, you know, for many of us, these were also defense mechanisms, you know. For those of us growing up in less than functional households, these character defects were the result of the reaction to other people's dysfunctional behavior. Uh, I realized that, you know, with the program that started in 1935 and which grew out of a Christian movement, uh, the phrase character defect itself might have already been a compromise, you know, a compromise using maybe a more religious word like sin. You know, I don't think uh, many of us would have stuck around past the first meeting if there'd been a lot of talks of sin and sinning and sinners, you know. It would have reminded me too much of, you know, things from my childhood, you know. So uh, the, the just like with the word God, for the purposes of this talk, I'll stick with the standard phrase character defects just, you know, just to make the talk easier. Um, so when it comes to character defects, what I talked about in an earlier Sunday talk was how I think character defects are the way for my disease to get back into my life once I've been abstinent in a while. You know, and this is especially true, you know, of my immaturity. But there are other defects uh, that exacerbated the problems in my life and which caused me lots of turmoil and drama. And when there's enough turmoil and drama in my life, there's only one way to calm that down for me, and that was the food, you know, or, you know, another substance or two. Uh, thankfully, you know, with ongoing recovery and uh, work on my defects, uh, you know, that's made for a lot less drama and turmoil in my life, you know. You know, because the important thing for me is that I don't want to eat compulsively today, but I also don't want to want to eat compulsively today. And that requires continuing work on all of the steps, you know. There's another level having to do with the elimination of our character defects, and that's a level that has to do with much more than just conquering an addiction. You know, if we are painstaking in working on our defects, you know, we tap into an amazing source of power that can change our lives in incredible ways, you know. When I first came to my first program, they had a list of questions, you know, just like all 12-step programs do to help you identify if you have a problem, OA does. And most of those questions were pretty obvious. Uh, you know, were you, in my case, were you arrested because of your drinking? Did you ever have a fight with your spouse because you're drinking and so on? But one in that list, I think it was like 20, it said, do you start projects that you never finish? Well, I went to my sponsor at the time and I said, you know, I understand all the rest of these, pretty logical, but what does this have to do with drinking? And he said, you know, John, we're immature people. We want immediate gratification. And the trouble with big projects is they often don't have that immediate payoff. And, you know, a lot of really important things in life require that. And so when we, the immature addict doesn't get that, we just quit. And what he went on to say is, he said, John, you don't understand that there's so much more to this program than not picking up. There's so much more that can be achieved in life if you get our character defects under control and and just do the work and you'll see. You know, and obviously our higher power is the only one that can totally remove character defects, but I can meet my higher power halfway by continuing to do the continued work on them, you know, so as to at least mitigate some of the damage they can cause. And when we do that, not only do we become more useful partners, we become better friends, workers. In fact, we'll improve pretty much every relationship in our lives, you know. I uh, There's a funny website, and it's an outside one, so I'm not going to talk with the name or anything like that. But it, it, it it's a website that does takeoffs on those, those motivational 
posters you see and companies have. You know the ones I'm talking about with the, the nice picture and then some pithy motivational slogan under it. Well, the one I caught my eye because they're all sort of you know funny. It said, the only common thing between you and all of your bad relationships is you. <laughs> and it was so true. When I look back now, all of these people I thought had a problem, they all pointed to me. I was the problem. You know, Julius Caesar, the line is, the fault, my dear Brutus, is, lies not within the stars, but myself. And that's what the program teaches us to do, is to look within ourselves. You know, Dr. Paul, in the acceptance paragraph, says, I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as to what needs to be changed in me and my attitudes. And, you know, hence the steps. Until I got my character defects under control, you know, I made a lot of bad decisions in my life based on immature thinking. You know, I was at my at times like really my own worst enemy. You know, I couldn't handle delayed gratification. I couldn't I didn't deal with disappointment well. You know, I didn't deal with life on life's terms. And in short, I didn't handle life like a mature adult, you know. And in retrospect, that was to be expected, you know, based on my family of origin. You know, my, my parents not only didn't have good parenting skills, you know, they didn't have good adulting skills. You know, ways to teach me how to deal with life as an adult. Why? Well, because mainly they were themselves emotionally immature and had their own addiction problems. You know, what could I learn modeling from somebody who couldn't model it for themselves? You know, uh, my mother was totally out of touch with her feelings due to her upbringing, and my father couldn't handle many tasks well because he had the emotional age of about 13. You know, if he was trying to fix something around the house and it took more than a few minutes to fix, and it was the slightest bit frustrating, I mean, things would go flying across the room and four-letter words everywhere. And it wasn't until I came into 12-step programs that I started to learn that there were different ways to deal with life other than the ways I had learned growing up. To do this, I really needed to dive into the sincere self-examination, you know, the desire to change that, that is, is in the steps. I often say that so much of this program requires faith. You know, not just faith in a higher power, though, you know, though I hope you have or find a, a higher power in your understanding, but also faith in this process. You know, we're told to do a fourth step, even though it requires work, some pain, a need to look at things we'd really rather not look at. But we do it because we're told we will feel better in the end. And so we do it, you know, based on faith in a sponsor faith in those who went before us, lo and behold, we do it and we do feel better. And this faith in the process is needed all through the steps. Steps in six and seven are, are no exception. We're told we have to be entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Well, removing some of them, no problem. But when we get to the entirely ready to remove all, we've hit a point of having to make another leap of faith. We have to have the faith that these self-defeating behaviors will be supplanted with new ones that will help us. That means letting go of these behaviors before we see any proof that we'll be given a better way. I believe in a higher power that will relieve me of more than one addiction, and, and I believe that higher power won't get me to a place halfway through the strip steps and then drop me on my head. So I continue the process, not just because I want a daily reprieve from my addiction, but <clears throat> also I truly want to be a better person. You know, that's what the program teaches us to do, to constantly be striving for better recovery. You know, I think I think sometimes wouldn't it be a wonderful world if everybody out there was doing that? 
so when it comes to the progression of the steps, when I first came in, it always seemed to me that steps four and five and eight and nine should have been sequential. It seemed to me in my early days that you know if you finished an inventory and then finished turning it over, you should get right to work on making amends. But they jammed step six and seven in between those two groups of action steps. You know, so why? Well, I think now it's about us starting to think about these defects so that when we go into starting the amends process, we can become more aware of what quirks in our personality we need to watch for while making those amends. You know, maybe, you know, just maybe we'll be a little bit more self-aware so we can make better amends. Otherwise, you know, we're just going to have new things to put on the next inventory. <laughs> so anyway, back to the main theme of this talk. What I found for me is that when I scrape down through the layers of my character defects to the bottom level of most of me is some kind of fear. You know, in my early days, I thought the majority of my problem was anger. You know, with us guys... Anger is usually the easiest thing to identify. I've, I've always joked that a newly sober men have two emotions, angry and about to get angry. <laughs> and early on, I didn't want to look past that because then I have to look at the real causes of that anger. You know, I've always heard anger was a secondary emotion, usually on top of other things like fear and hurt. But, you know, fear is not one of those macho emotions. So, you know, I didn't want to look at that for a long time. But, of course, I am not unique. And sure enough, fear... Is usually the deepest layer uh, of most of my character defects. Uh, for some people, anger was unacceptable growing up, and as a result, that anger got turned inwards and can become depression. You know, for those people, I think when they're recovering, they have to do so in the reverse order. Meaning, sometimes those people need to first find that anger, then they can work on scraping down the layers to the real problems. So when it comes to defects and fear, there's, to me, there's two types of fear I've dealt with in my numerous inventories. Uh, you know, first is the basic fear we all know. You know, fear is obviously an important facet of life. I mean, it's built into our, our DNA. It's part of the brain in the brain called the amygdala. It goes back to the, the early, our earliest days, not just as humans, but earliest days as life forms. You know, we're, we're all descendant from ancestors whose fear kept them safe long enough to reproduce, you know. Uh, for all I know, you know, one of my ancestors was, you know, I don't know, fearful enough of a saber-toothed tiger to run away. You know, maybe one of his buddies wasn't and walked up to it and went, hey, nice kitty. <laughs> and, you know, the result was my ancestor survived, you know, while the other guy became cat food. Um, well, these are types of fear that went on my fear inventory and, and other very, you know, pronounced ones. You know, thankfully, the level of those upper-level fears on my list over the years on over-inventories has decreased quite a bit. Uh, I'm not saying I'm totally fearless, but the, the amount of specific fears, is, it seemed to me in looking at it, has dropped in recent inventories pretty much in direct proportion to a faith in some kind of a higher power. You know, like anybody, I have, you know, faith, fear of disability, fear of some long, lingering, painful illness. Um, interesting, I, I, I think I came to realize death really isn't one of my fears. I, I think I, death is the real perfect example of things I cannot change, and I came to peace with that a long time ago. You know, I decided if I, if I realized I was going to die tomorrow, or if I realized uh, at 120, I'm, I'm, I'm always going to have the same thought, oh, just a little more time. <laughs> and I think once I realized I was going to feel that way, no matter when the end, end came, I sort of shrugged and said, okay, well, whenever, you know, and... Uh, you know, it's not that I'm walking down dark alleys with $20 bills hanging out of my pocket, but, you know, I'm not really overly afraid of that. 
but you know, like Leah mentioned, some of the more immediate, tangible fears in my life—that's that's something else. You know, I work for myself, so there's a certain fear of financial insecurity. You know, and I always joke in in this working for yourself that I I vacillate between fear I'm not going to get everything done I need to get done to the fear of oh my God I'll never work again. You know, I get that thought, I'll be living under a bridge, or I'll be selling fruit on a corner, you know. Thanks to program, I can understand that's, you know, it's just my diseased brain doing what it does best, catastrophizing, you know. Catastrophizing is actually my ego, building up a problem into something huge, because I can't just have a normal-sized problem, you know. My grandiosity wants to tell me that my problems are huge, they're the hugest. Well, they're not, you know. I might have to run a balance on my credit card this month. Darn. You know, all of my problems today, when I really can be honest and objective about it, they're all first world problems. You know, most of the people I know in program, they may have problems, but they're first world problems. And one of the ways I, I learned to, I was taught to lose that grandiose fear was to make a gratitude list. And I, I was taught a long time ago to start that list with the bar appropriately low. You know, meaning I have two eyes, I can walk, I have good health, I have never gone hungry. Well, it's certainly not third world hunger. You know, and but for the grace of God, I could have been born somewhere where, you know, being an overeater is somebody's greatest fantasy. You know, you know, somebody in in that third world country is like, wait a minute, not only do you have enough to eat, but you have more than enough so you can overeat? I mean, that concept is like science fiction in places in the world. And, you know, but for the grace of God, I could have been there. In terms of my defects, however, you know, I think there's more subtle fears. And this is the thing I really came to understand after I don't know how many inventories. The chief fear, if I'm honest with myself, that's underneath almost every one of my defects, is the fear of not being enough, of not being good enough of not being as good as you or as other, good as others, and then certainly fear of not being seen as good enough. You know, firstly, when I, I look at how I compared myself to others in the past, it was always to serve an old script that's been in my head since childhood to prove to myself that I wasn't good enough. There's this lady here in California down in Orange County has got a great line. She says, the shortest distance to insanity is through comparison. I love that. You know, because the reality is that in the world, we all compare favorably to some people in some things and not favorably to people in others. You know, that's called life. But what I would tend to do was to find the people I compared unfavorably to in some area and then make note of that. You know, in this way, I was reinforcing an existing belief that I was less than. Now, you know, this, this kind of reinforcement is really human nature. We tend to constantly want to try to reinforce preconceived ideas. You know, I saw a perfectly, perfect example of that, I don't know, a, a, a long, well, it wasn't a long time ago, but uh, it was like right before my mother passed away, I was visiting her down in Jacksonville Beach, Florida, and uh, she was out driving, and she was driving, and we're going down a street that has a lot of traffic lights on it, and she's talking and just driving, and I noticed we went through a bunch of green lights in a row, more than I think we usually hit, and then all of a sudden, up ahead, the light turns yellow, and she has to stop. And she turns to me and says, see, I always hit the red light. Well, we had just driven through about 10 green lights in a row. But my mother's script is, was that she always hit red lights. So when she did hit it, she'd stop, reinforce that in her head, and pay no attention to the ones that didn't you know, help 
with that script. And, and it was a really interesting thing to see because I thought about how I do that in so many other areas in my life. You know, somewhere in the past, I got messages from people, you know, almost assuredly my family of origin, that I wasn't enough. You know, I'm sure they didn't say it directly. But, you know, I was teased for being too sensitive. I was to- talked about being too fat, obviously. I was, you know, any number of things that they thought were unacceptable and criticized me about. And so when I left home, I took that script that was given to me and, I, and that deeply inbred belief in me and, and took it with me into adulthood. You know, and the result was that this belief that I am not enough is the behind that is the overwhelming desire to hide that fact from you and from the world. And as a result, I had a myriad of behaviors that tried to, in a misguided way, uh, accomplish this. And almost all of those would be characterized as character defects, in that they worked against me, you know, and worked to inhibit my usefulness to, you know, God and others. I like to. I just want to go through some of them. And see if you identify with this. Um, I was egotistical. You know, I would need to boast about my accomplishments. Uh, An old sponsor used to say, a person who feels good about himself on any subject doesn't need to boast about it, which is true. Uh, I was prone to an exaggeration. I would need to add a little something to anything I did. You know, if I shot an 85 in golf, I would have to tell you I scored an 80. You know why? 85 is a perfectly good score. Because I needed to be better. Because deep down, you know, I was never going to be enough. I was prone to gossiping, putting other people down. Why? Because somehow this would give me some mythical edge against them. You know, and of course, you know, come to understand in program, you never build yourself up by tearing other people down. Uh, I had a chronic need for attention. You know, hey, look over here, look at me. You know, don't look at those other people who are better than me. Or, or if you are, or the other thought was, well, if you're all looking at me, I must not be as bad as I think. Uh, I was prejudiced, not not racially prejudiced or religiously prejudiced or sexuality or anything like that. But I could see how I've been prejudiced against certain groups who didn't think like me. And I had to consider uh, in looking at that whether it might have been because they might have had some thoughts that were right and mine were wrong, and that would have punctured punctured my fragile self-belief system. You know, I, I also had an incredible desire to be different. <clears throat> when I was younger, I I had to do things differently than others. When I was growing up, everybody wore jeans and t-shirts to school. So I would come into school with a jacket and tie. Why? I think because if I told myself I was the one making myself different, I didn't have to look at how different I really felt anyway. And, and that's the thing. If those others are making me feel different and less than, that's awful. But if I'm the one instigating that, I can look. I can tell myself that, and then I can look down at the others, call them all lemmings, and, and feel superior, which is what I did. I was also vain, obsessed with my looks and my weight. Well, you know, I think most compulsive eaters, the weight thing is just there. Uh, but I needed that external validation. I needed this because there was absolutely no internal validation, no internal feeling that I'm all right just the way I am. You know, I was a people pleaser, especially in relationships and dating. You know, if you told me you like Chinese opera, well, then I like Chinese opera. But why? Well, because I couldn't disagree with you or you'd leave. And then I'd be alone. And I'd never be with anybody again. Why? Because they would all see me as this worthless fraud I am, right? 
Uh, and then there was jealousy. Jealousy is an easy one to identify fear. If I'm jealous of someone, I'm automatically saying that I think they're better than me. Uh, you know, I want what they have. You know, if I'm a jealous partner in a relationship, I'm saying I'm not good enough and I won't measure up to other guys. So I need to, you know, jealously guard my territory. Uh, but it was also procrastination. You know, in the AA 12 and 12, they call that sloth in five syllables. And this is one of the few places I think I disagree with that book. I think procrastination is fear in five syllables. My procrastination was often tied to my perfectionism. I wasn't going to be able to do it perfectly, so why bother? You know, other times it was a fear of it not going as perfectly as I fantasized it. So if I put off whatever it was I was going to do, it stays perfect in my fantasy, as opposed to doing it and then having it obviously never be as perfect as it is in my brain. One of my favorite quotes that I quote to sponsees all the time is this, plans without action is fantasy. And let me repeat that. Plans without action is fantasy. So much of my time, I had all these great plans that just stayed in my head. I would procrastinate them into infinity sometimes. I was selfish and greedy. Um, I think if you grow up in a narcissistic household or a household where people thought more about themselves than each other, you have a fear of not getting your share. And when you get out in the world, you bring that character trait, that liability, that defect with you, and you operate that way as an adult. It's not a particularly good personality trait to have. I also had fear of confrontation, of standing up for what I need. Why? Why? Because again, you'll leave me, you won't like me, and all that was intolerable to me without having some basic self inside. You know, there's other character defects associated with other types of fear. You know, I had control issues. You know, for me, it's a fear that things will spin out of control if I don't intervene. Well, I, you know, I can know now that came from growing up in this crazy environment where, where I, even as a child, often had to hold things together for the adults in my life. So it's hard then to go out as an adult and trust that others are going to be able to handle it just fine. Uh, I was also cynical. I, I, you know, this is another way I think my disease can get in at me. Um, for me, when there was a fear of things I didn't understand or which threatened me subconsciously, it would become cynicism. You know, instead of rather of looking at what was making me feel uncomfortable, I would just poo-poo it and make fun of it. You know, I always said, I have the trifecta of cynicism, okay? I'm an alcoholic comedian from New York. Well, you can't get much more cynical than that. You know, I'll give you a perfect example of something I poo-pooed, and that was positive affirmations. I'd be like, oh, you want me to stand in front of a mirror and tell myself I'm a good person? Yeah, right, yeah. You know, but here's the thing. I bought hook, line, and sinker. All of those negative affirmations I told myself every day, you know. Uh, a little more on that later. Let me go. Let me just continue this this list a little more. Uh, I had a lot of negative thinking, a lot of pessimistic way of dealing with life, and part of that, in looking back, it was like if I got out ahead of something enough, and I predicted a negative outcome, I could insulate myself a little from the disappointment that was inevitably going to come. You know, the problem was that this mindset often generated self-fulfilling prophecies. And, and it also doesn't make you a fun person to be around when you've got that negative, pessimistic thing. And uh, perfectionism, again, you know, was also at the root of many character flaws, like indecision. Oh, my God, I'm not going to make the perfect decision. Well, why did I need to be perfect? Why? Because I'm less than you. You can afford to not be perfect. 
I needed to be perfect to convince myself I was as good as you. After all, if there isn't anything above perfect, right? So if I was perfect, then I knew at the very least we had to be equal. Uh, I hated fear of the unknown or being in suspense. Some of that goes back to control issues. I couldn't stand to have to wait for outcomes of things I was a part of. I would rather have something not go my way as fast as possible rather than to have to wait for what could end up being a possibly positive outcome later. You know, and I think, look, looking back, ambiguity was rife in my household of Perth, and, and that's such a total lack of control. So, like, I'd, I'd rather take control and quit a job rather than find out whether or not I had a bad evaluation. Um, I mean, just to wrap up, I, on this list, uh, being a victim, I would play a victim, which was often about bemoaning how many bad things really had happened to me, you know? And I'm like, really? Come on. The fact is, everybody has bad things happen to them, and I probably got just about my fair share. You know? I love the line, be careful about praying for what you deserve, because you might actually get what you deserve. <laughs> but playing a victim, especially if I did that with others, would get me sympathy and lots of there, there, you poor thing kind of attention. And, you know, that's something a mature person doesn't need. And uh, anyway, I could go on and on. I, I just tried to list a bunch of the various character defects and how that the, that fear was involved in it. And, and hopefully, you know, you'll be able to, you know, identify a little with some of those and maybe have others you can think about. So <clears throat> what is the solution? Well, firstly, rec recognizing that defects to fear link I was just talking about, I think is very helpful. It's why I spent so much time enumerating this for you there, because I think seeing that link allows you to see yourself in a slightly more objective way, maybe even a slightly more compassionate way. It allows you to see yourself as the damaged child of God. You are. None of us came into the world with these defects of character. You know, They came as a result of, of being around people with less than perfect life skills, bad situations, you know, erroneous choices made earlier. At the end of the day, however, most of us have left home, left home a long time ago. And in you know, this great relay race of life, we got past the baton of all those misguided coping mechanisms. And now we've grabbed the baton and, and we're using them on a daily basis. You know, the good news is that we're in a program now where we can change those things. An important thing for me to remember is that, as it says in the AA 12 and 12, you know, we have to be content with patient improvement, meaning my job here is to have the willingness to change, to pray for the, you know, for the willingness to pray, you know, that my defects are removed to try and be cognizant of that. I didn't, I can only do as much as I can. I don't get to choose which defects God will remove totally. But when it comes to character defects, I think it's a matter of acknowledge, identify, and then move on. In other words, you can't think your way into right action, but you can act your way into right thinking. You know, To be willing to look at the various fears that drive our character defects and remember that every fear, once confronted, is always less than what we've built it up in our heads. And so what's at the bottom of the solution? Well, I've already said it, faith. Do I believe that there's a higher power out there that will not only help me with my active addiction, but that will help me change if I meet him or it halfway? I absolutely do. And again, I'm a 
believer in a grounded out idea of a higher power. So I don't just sit around praying for my character defects to be removed and leave it at that. I, I put one foot in front of the other to do my best not to practice them on a daily basis or, or acknowledge and try and change as soon as I may have done that. You know, to me, it, it's about action. You know, it's nice to know all those things. It's nice to think of those links I have, and I think they're very important. But I love somebody in a meeting once said, insight is cheap. Without change, it's actually worse than anything because now you know better. You know, I'm like, amen on that. There's a, a great AA pamphlet I've mentioned in other talks I love called The Member's Eye View of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's just a wonderful restating of AA thoughts and principles for people who are not in AA. It's actually a transcript of a talk given here in L.A. to a graduating class of uh, substance abuse counselors by an AA, AA old-timer. <clears throat> and in, in it, he talks about being careful about relying just simply on self-analysis alone. You know, He says, I love this, he says, autopsies are wonderful things. They just don't benefit the person on whom they're performed. You know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with self-knowledge, but only if it goes hand-in-hand hand on working to change that. Otherwise, I'm just sitting around and blaming my character defects on my parents and my horrible childhood. You know, poor me, poor me, poor me a milkshake, right? Again, all of this is a matter of patient improvement. For me, I think it means that there's a ratio of good days to bad days that, you know, slowly changes. You know, concerning the activity of my character defects, it gets better. And, you know, of course... That doesn't mean that sometimes there isn't one step forward, two steps back. But overall, if I'm painstaking, if I'm doing the work, if I'm keeping you know, the glasses pointed at me and the new pair of glasses pointed at me, uh, it will get better. Uh, the graph continues to move upwards. The key, again, is the willingness to change, the willingness to let go of behaviors that I've had for years you know, and many of them, I think I can't, like, couldn't live without. You know, I, you know, I wasn't nuts. I, I used them because they work. But again, to let go of them requires that faith that something better will replace them. But change is the key. You know, I always say, remember, change isn't painful. Resistance to change is painful. Having that underlying belief that I have today through a higher power that things are happening and will happen exactly the way they're supposed to be helps me address all types of fear. And, and you know, when it comes to dealing with my character defects, it helps me realize that everything is happening is exactly the way it's supposed to be. And that includes myself. You know, I have to get at a gut level that nothing that is happening in my life or will happen tomorrow will destroy me, which is one of my basic fears. Oh, my God, I'm going to catastrophize. I can look now and say, you know, I've made it through everything life has had to throw at me so far. Why would I think this wouldn't continue? Uh, and, you know, we all know the acceptance paragraph on page 417, the big book. But I'm also a huge fan of the paragraph that immediately comes after that. And part of that, in that paragraph, it says, AA and acceptance has taught me there's a bit of good in the worst of us and a bit of bad in the best of us, that we are all children of God and we each have a right to be here. When I complain about you or about me, I am complaining about God's handiwork. I am saying I know better than God. Well, you know, I always read that as when I complain about you in terms of being judgmental, which is one of my bad character defects. 
But that's not what it says. It says when I complain about me or about you. So if I'm complaining about myself, I'm complaining about God's handiwork. I need to realize I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be today. You know, acceptance isn't just about accepting life and the things life has happening in my life. It's about accepting me, you know, as being the perfect child of God put here on this earth. And that that makes me makes it a lot easier to then accept others. I can realize we're we're all just here without the real manual on how to live. We're all just, you know, grown-up kids muddling along trying to do our best. And uh, you know, and I can realize today that, you know, um you know, where I am today is not where I want to be defect-wise. But maybe perhaps living with those defects is meant to teach me some humility. You know, um I always joke that my my uh, I'm married and it's my second marriage. My my poor first wife got John 1.0. <laughs> you know, you know I was sober but hadn't done much work program wise. And and then uh, in between my two marriages, I, I dated somebody for a long time, and she got John 2.0. And now my wife has John 3.0. And uh, you know, day in and day out, I'm 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 in the beta version of John 4.0. In other words, I want to keep being a better person, a better man, a better husband, and all those things. And I know part of that is accepting, okay, this is where I am today, and it's okay. You know, as a friend in program says, and some of you know who this is, no matter how much we work this program, how much we memorize the big book, do all the work, we don't rise above the level of human being. And that means on any given day, all of us, you don't care how much time you have in program, you know, how many retreats you lead, how many convention keynote speaking things you do. We all fall flat on our face uh, with our character defects on any given day. day. And, and if you don't think that's true for me, you can talk to my wife or my sponsor and they'll tell you just how human I am. But the key here is that today I see myself as human. I'm not bad. I'm not stupid. I'm just human. That's not to say I don't want to do better, but I've put the stick down that I used to beat myself up with for many years. You know, here, here's just a quick example. <clears throat> uh, on that trip, I went back to see my mother. Uh, you know, a number of years ago before she passed away. Um, I got an example. I got an, uh, a view of of how some of these ideas are injected into me. Um, uh, I was visiting her. She was in the kitchen. She was holding a dish in her hand. She turned and banged her elbow against the refrigerator, and she dropped the dish, and it broke. And she immediately said, "You stupid son of a just for myself." And I watched it, and I laughed, and I thought to myself, ah, that's where I got that. You know, think about it. She dropped a dish. She's human. Gravity is there. Yet what did she say to herself? She's stupid. And I'm sure that's where I got that kind of thinking and many other negative thoughts like that. Not from her telling me I'm stupid or any of those things, but as a kid observing that. Oh, if you drop something, you're stupid. No, you're human. And I – I had to get that on on a on a deep level. That took years of of being with you guys and and listening to what the things you told me and what the big book told me to realize that I know you know that where I'm at now is not where my higher power wants me to be tomorrow, and that's why you know he pointed me to toward the steps in the big book. You know, in other words, I and you guys were sent that manual that nobody else has. We just have to pick it up and read it and be willing to do the work involved. Uh, you know, the last part of that key is the key there, do the work. Otherwise, you know, the big book is just an expensive doorstop. Uh, what the big book taught me and what all the work I've done 
has revealed to me is exactly what I said. I'm human. I'm a flawed human, as we all are. I'm not the worst. I'm not the best. I'm just another bozo on the bus. You know? But there's a great comfort in that. If you can believe that at your core, if you can believe at your core, I'm okay. I'm where God wants me to be. But more importantly, I am enough. I am enough exactly the way I am today. I'd like you to like me, but I don't need you to like me. I like myself. I know I'm a good person. If you don't think I am, then I'm sorry I gave you that impression, but I also don't have to live for your approval. I have a higher power that assures me I'm enough. You know, once you get that at a core level, the underlying fear behind many of these defects that I've spoken about, it, they dissipate. You, begin, you start to change because the need for those character defects is gone. You know, all of a sudden, that leap of faith, you, you all of a sudden see the bridge between letting go of one and getting the You don't need those old ones anymore. Those different behaviors that the program promised me will effortlessly replace the bad character defects that plague my life and my relationships. You know, I, I have, through program, gotten maturity. I've gotten a loss of ego, a loss of negativity. I've found moderation in all things. You know, I wear life as a loose garment today. I don't take myself too seriously. You know, someone once said, you know, the point of recovery is finding balance. I think I lead a relatively well-balanced life today, and that's certainly not where I was when I came into my first 12-step program, you know, as a raving lunatic, by the way, <laughs> 35 years ago this week. So, you know, one last uh, funny thing. You, you know that one of the things I ended up using to counter all those negative messages that were drilled in my head as a kid, you know, one of the tools that helped me change that? Here's the irony. Positive affirmations. The exact thing I poo-pooed the most when I was first in program. Because I realized I'd gotten those negative affirmations injected to me verbally. And I needed to do something to counter that. You know, I didn't do, I don't do that as much now, but every once in a while, when one of those negative messages shoots out, I'm sort of able to identify it. And, and sort of as a loving parent of the damaged child within me, I can counteract it instantly, you know, and, and I can pray, God, remove this, you know, and to realize that it's an, it's ongoing work. It's never going to be perfect. Just like I uh, will always have, food urges the rest of my life. I just don't have to act on them today. And all of this has really changed me the most. And, you know, when I think about that, I know that none of this would have ever come about, you know, had there not been a guy named Bill Wilson who met a guy named Dr. Bob Smith and, you know, had written that manual for my life. So uh, that's just about all I have to share. L let me just take one quick uh, moment. I know Harlan's mentioned this before, but uh, I'd like to do it as well. You know, we're, we have this little annual gathering in Los Angeles called the OA Birthday Party. It's a three-day convention for, uh, for OA members. We get about 600 people from around the United States and Canada. We have workshops. We have panels. We have marathon meetings. Lori C. from Canada is going to become coming in to lead a big book workshop there the entire weekend. I'll be there. Harlan will be there. Lots of people you may have heard on the LA podcast. A number of the visionaries are going to be there. Uh, we also have great keynote speakers with over 30 years abstinence. Uh, we're going to have a Friday night musical with professional actors and singers. On Saturday night, we've got five 
professional comedians. Many of them have been on The Tonight Show, HBO, films and TV. Anyway, all of this is happening on January 13th to 15th, which is Martin Luther King weekend at the LAX Hilton here in, in Los Angeles, sunny Los Angeles in January, not a bad place to be. Uh, it's at the airport, so there's even a free shuttle of the hotel. You don't need a car. The rooms are $119 a night, and you can put up four people in a room, 119 for Hilton, trust me, <laughs> good thing. And then the registration fee for the actual event is $40 until Thanksgiving. You know, For those of us who paid 109 plus at the World Convention, you can tell you that's $40 a deal. We're also going to have a Vision for You meetup on Saturday afternoon, and we're going to get one of our visionaries to pitch this group to the whole convention on Friday night. So anyway... Just thought I'd throw that out there. If you're interested, it's very simple. There's a website. You can go read more. It's oabirthday.com. Can't get any easier than that, oabirthday.com. I hope to see you guys there. And with that, uh, Leah, I think uh, I think I've uh, sort of said my piece. Thank you very much, John, for your fascinating and insightful presentation this morning. Thanks for sharing your personal experience, strength, and hope with all of us today. Much appreciated. So compelling. Thank you. John's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. And now we'll, we will transition to questions. If you have a question for John, you can press star 1 to unmute and identify yourself, please. This is Anne-Marie. I hear Anne-Marie. Who else? Amanda R. Amanda All right, Anne-Marie, go right ahead. Uh, thank you, Leah, for your service. And, uh, John, thank you again so much. Um, you offer so much to um, OA. I appreciate it. Um, I heard you say that you um, use those affirmations, and I was wondering if you would give some examples of what affirmations you actually say. Uh, well, I, I mean, the main thing I think in the beginning that I did was you're okay, you're, you're enough. You, uh, I, I remember also, you know, I'm trying to think of, you know, I one of I'll, I'll talk about the negative affirmations first. I mean, I was always too fat. I don't care where I was. I even went through a period of anorexia. My weight was had became so integrated with my self worth, and of course it isn't, but. Uh, I, I would say things like "You're okay," and, and as as I kept working on faith too, you know, you are the child of God. You're perfect uh, as you are. There is a higher power looking out for you, and, and I would work on those kind of things, and, and also working on the fear, you know, within that, you know, everything's going to be all right. You know, this this lady who I mentioned from Orange County, she has a great line. She says, "My higher power loves. He's crazy about me. He's so crazy about me he can't take his eyes off me." Which I just always love. That's a you know a phrase I love. But just the whole idea, I would be, "You're okay." You're, you know, everything's going to be okay. And I especially do these kind of things. You know, I, I, I think for a while I was actually doing them, you know, like a, a series of my God, I could, I could try and find, I don't know if I have it here, but I actually wrote out some at one point. Um, and, 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 uh, but now they I'll tend to be as, as things come up and, and, and I'll, tr it's more about countering those old bad scripts that are in there, you know, because they're all the things I enumerated that all come down to, I'm no good. Uh, you know, I'm stupid. I'm this, I'm that. And, and, and of course I'm not, boy, those things are still sometimes 
in other words, there will sometimes be such a knee-jerk thing that it'll happen immediately, and then, but then I can catch it immediately. Like I said with that thing about my mother, you know, I'll use the phrase, "Are oh, you stupid?" And I go, "No, I'm not stupid. I'm not stupid." You know, I got plenty of uh, you know proof to the contrary, but it'll come. And then tr- just trying to remember, I'm okay. I am not the. You know, and again, I'm not the best in the world. I'm not the worst in the world. I'm in the middle, and it's just fine. I'm another human being, especially the human being part. That's something that's only come to me about the last ten years. I think I, I would look at the perfection. The way I saw it was I was never doing program perfectly. You know, I would listen to the thing at the end, you know, in, in I think, page 86, where it goes into the whole list at the end of the day, you know, did I do this? Did I do that? Did I do that? And I'd be checking off, no, no, no. And I'd be thinking, oh, my God, I'm a, well, all these years in program, and I'm still doing this. And I realized now, you know, all these things that the big book talks, talks about are ideals. They're ideals toward which we strive. But I don't think any of us ever hit them, you know, perfectly or all of them. But I would see those and say, oh, my God, I'm not doing every one of these right. I'm not perfect, so therefore, you know, I'm not doing the program. And now I get, okay, well, I'm, I'm trying. I genuinely want to do every one of these things the program talks about, but I'm still going to fall flat on my face because I'm a human being. So I don't know if that helps. Yes, thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Anne-Marie. Amanda R.? Hi, this is Amanda R. Um, I had a question about how to help people when uh, this this happens relatively frequently. When I someone calls me with a ten step, I'll sometimes have a, a, a strong thought in my head that there's some fear involved, and in in what they're struggling with, just because I'm a fellow human being. How is there a, a helpful way to try? to help people investigate that in themselves just because my experience has been they often don't want to see it. <laughs> I feel like I've missed a chance. Well, I, I've I've had sponsees, you know, I, when I've seen something, I'll try and gently guide them to do some writing on it, you know. I'd, you know, whenever possible, I come out of a, a, a bit of a background of uh, – uh, my wife's a psychologist, and the person I dated for God knows years uh, before her was also a psychologist. And one of the things in psychology is, you know, psychologists often will see a person's problem immediately, you know, because they've got the training. But they can't just sit there and go, "Hey, here's your problem," and point to it and say it. Which is one of the reasons I would make a good psychologist, because I think I'd want to, not because I'm judgmental, but I just want to help. But it's so much more important for people to get this revelation themselves. Uh, and so um, maybe asking them to write and write on it and say, can you maybe see if you can find some fears under that? Then when they do the writing, you, you can somehow, you can, you know, if they've hit something but they haven't hit it right, you can sort of question them and say, well, in that thing of fear, you know, this, what, what do, you, do you think there was more fear involved than that? And maybe, you know, sort of draw it out of them. You know, like if they've if they've given you a little thread, you can sort of pull on it a little and keep pulling on it until, until you know, the, the thing is revealed. And uh, sometimes I think that's an important thing. Writing was another thing I, I did a lot of, and maybe I didn't get to that, of, of sometimes I, I call it like automatic writing, whereas uh, something would be bothering me and I couldn't get my ha- my my, my uh, hands on what the problem was. I would just sit and start writing, uh, you know, just, you know, like 
like, oh, I, I don't know why I'm writing. I got nothing to write about. You know, what, what, what could I could be talking about? You know, this is dumb. Well, what, what could be bothering me? Well, so and so said that yesterday, but that didn't bother me. Oh yeah, if that didn't bother you. Why are you writing about it? <laughs> you know, and all of a sudden I can pull on that. So, so I'm a huge believer. Sometimes if people are having trouble, is to sit, have them sit down and do some writing on it. I don't know if that helps. That's that's what I have. Thank you, Amanda, for the question. Who else has a question this morning? This is Linda Jason D. from C. North Carolina. Linda, who else did I hear? Jason C. Jason. Anyone else? All right, let's go with Linda. Good morning. This is Linda D. from North Carolina. Can I be heard? Yes. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, I want to thank you for a wonderful talk, and um, I'm just recently through my fourth and fifth step. I'm up to eight now, and um, I learned how to do a fear inventory and a resentment inventory. And um, so the, you talked about uh, fear being per, sort of inversely per, proportional to faith, and I like that idea. Mm. And um, I heard in another talk that someone said that they had for a long time before they came to their rooms professed faith that they really didn't have. And I, my faith in God wavers, uh, even though I've done a third, um, you know, in a second, but it wavers. So sometimes when I get to the end of that, that inventory, you know, I say, please God remove. And it's, it's, it's a difficult thing to, to reach, but I do it anyway. Hmm. And so I'm asking this for myself, but I'm also asking it with regard to, helping sponsees who may have either an agnostic or an atheist um, perspective or, um, or 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 not be sure, you know, sure enough on a given day. How do you help somebody work through the fear inventory if that faith is wavering? Well, that's a good, great question. Um, well, <clears throat> like I had started to say earlier, um, I'm a huge believer in well, uh, let me just put it this way. Uh, I'm a huge believer in the concept of a hierarchy of higher powers, plural. You know, at the end of the day, I do personally have a belief in a higher power that's overall, you know, in my life. But I also said to sponsees, that's not necessarily hugely important in the beginning. I think it's something you want to try and find. Uh, but And one of the things that allowed me to do that was that my first sponsor in my other program told me I, I could stay here until I'm 100 and I don't have to believe anything. And because he said it that way, it took the pressure off, and then I could start to explore. Um, <clears throat> and so I personally believe in a higher power. And the thing is, I, I heard somebody say once, I love the, the, the phrase, they said, uh, uh, the, the 12 steps are God's gift to the 20th century. And and I believe that, and I'll tell you why. Because, you know, I've been around for 35 years, and I have met Catholic priests, rabbis, ministers, nuns, cantors, every possible kind of clergy in this program. And if it was simply a matter of a conscious contact with a higher power, they wouldn't have had to been here. They, you know, people were dying of alcoholism without any hope until 1935 uh, and then you know compulsive eating until 1960 and uh the thing is is that um i believe that i personally believe my higher power gave us this i mean 
you've heard the talks. Harlan does a wonderful thing on, on talking about the chess game that had to go into coming up with this program. You know, the you know, the guy in Switzerland coming over to New York and then the one guy in New York City with the guy from Albany and and how he knew the guy from East Dorset, you know, and all those things and then going out to Akron. I mean it's I you know, how many coincidences do you need before you believe that this could have come from somewhere else? Personally, this is just my personal opinion. But what I tell sponsees is all of that 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 uh, situation is uh, whether you want to believe in that or not, th- I believe my higher power gave us this program, these steps, the big book, as the rowboat to row to shore, the ro- you know the shore of recovery, and that it does it 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 almost is irrelevant. Uh, it isn't irrelevant, obviously, but that again, those priests, those ministers, those rabbis have to get into the same rowboat I'm in and the same rowboat the atheist is in, and they still have to do the same work. So, you know, and I tell sponsees, it's, you know, exactly what your belief in higher power is way less important than the belief that you're a lesser power, that I am a lesser power, especially when it comes to my disease and things like that. And that that uh, the faith they need is simply the faith in the process and in the program. And whereas, you know, it took me a long time to find a faith in higher power because I'm a child of alcoholics and I couldn't have faith in the people I should be able to, to trust. And now you're telling me I had to have faith in something I can't see or, or that. That was really hard. But I did have faith in the beginning in the process because I had the empirical proof standing in front of me. I go to my my two home meetings here in L.A., you know, Serenity Sunday and Kitchen Sink, and I see people standing in front of me that are keeping 100 pounds off for 20, 30 35, 40 years, you know, I know it can be done and that they've done it exactly the same way, you know. Uh, and so what I tell them is to have faith, my, my sponsees who have trouble with that, just have faith in the process, but also keep an open mind. Keep an open mind that maybe there's more to this. In other words, the rowboat is the important thing. And I happen to be in the same rowboat that sponsee who's an atheist is, and my the only difference is in my rowboat I can see the I can see the thread going up to my higher power and it doesn't matter I still have to do the same things every day that anybody else does now I happen to believe in more and I believe in in the idea of praying for something and I you know I've said to people sometimes maybe it's just the act of praying will do it it'll help reinforce you don't want so maybe maybe just the idea of praying God to have this removed from me is even if it's just saying it to yourself and reinforcing that can be a big part of this. Uh, I do tell people there's there's loads of people in program who have no absolute belief and they want to think of themselves as atheists, and that's fine, but it doesn't preclude them from, from doing that as long as they can have some faith in the process and do things. You know, I always joke that, when, especially because I went through a really bad relapse. Some of you guys heard the relapse thing I did last December and November, I forget. But I always said that when I was coming out of that relapse, I needed a sponsor way more than I needed a higher power, you know, because and I I know now that that sponsor was a bridge to my higher power. But right then I needed I needed that and I needed I needed help. I knew I needed help first step. I knew there's somebody out there who could help me. And that was a sponsor. That was the second step. And then for me, it was about being willing to take direction and get myself out of the way, which is the third step. And even today, 
you know, when I, you know, it's always had a little bit of a trouble with the concept of turn it over, you know, you know, but what I, I heard somebody say they were, they were sort of, um, paraphrasing something that was in the third step in the AA 12 and 12 of saying, you know, when I think of the 12th, the third step, I think more about instead of actively turning over it, I think of it more as removing the blockage of self-will, of me getting out of the way. And, and I think that helps. And just the whole idea of telling them that it's it's about um, doing what the program says. And even if you, that's faith in and of itself that, you know, but again, that's a little easier to deal with because they can see what it, what the results of that are. Even if they don't believe it themselves in the beginning, they can see that other people have recovered and maybe that'll help. Very, very helpful. Thank you. Thank you, Linda D. And that Sunday special that John was just referring to was held on Sunday, December 6th, Recovery from Relapse, Ending Our Countless Vain Attempts. You can find it on the website. And now we'll go to Jason C. Hi, thank you for the presentation. Uh, Would you be uh, willing to share your experience as it relates to uh, fear involving direct conflict with other people. Uh, And to give that question maybe a little bit of context, I have found uh, for myself, I have some relief over general anxieties uh, of just things happening to me. But when it comes to direct conflict with others, it's something that I still find myself carrying more fear than I would like to. Uh, thank you. Okay. <clears throat> sure. Um, yeah, I, I know that was one of the ones I enumerated a little, and, and uh, but I sort of maybe did it uh, in a short version of that. Yeah, I, I, I for a long time had a lot of fear of, of conflict. Now, I came from a very uh, loud and uh, I wouldn't call it physically violent, but certainly emotionally violent and, uh, and maybe emotionally violent isn't the right word. But in other words, you know, that's where I got that, and I got it as a little kid, so it made me very fearful because things could blow out of control very easily, and so if I could find a way to avoid conflict, a lot of times I would, but then at the same time, I would do things that I really didn't want to or deal with, and then I'd walk around with resentment, or I'd walk around with, you know, my stomach churning because it's not what I wanted to do, and and um, part of it, and it, it, it depends on, on, in some ways it's about <clears throat> the fear of the actual confrontation. And the other is the fear of, um, that if I tell you something that you don't agree with, you won't like me anymore. You know, you, you won't have, want to have anything to do with me, et cetera. Sometimes it is just pure, uh, I don't want to deal with conflict. I, uh, it's funny. I saw this, uh, you know, I've, I saw this recently with, some, uh, in one of my meetings that, um, uh, some I'm not going to go into the exact details, but somebody in the meeting was doing something that was, you know, bothering more than one person. And so what ended up happening was uh, somebody put up a, a you know, a, a group conscience on something, and we had a steering committee meeting about it. And uh, it was a group conscience to, 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 you know, make an announcement that not to do what this person was doing. And, and, and old timer said, you know, 
we we tend to keep doing this at meetings where somebody does something we don't like and we decide we have to put something in the format about it. And the next thing you know, we've got 5,000 things in the format and all those people that we put that in for have stopped coming to the meeting years ago. And, and the person said, maybe we want to consider our um, fear of confrontation and maybe just going and trying to talk to them. And, and this woman said, you know, the great line she had was she said, uh, communicate, don't legislate, <laughs> which I thought was a great thing. But it's very hard because um, it, there, it, when it comes to conflict, uh, in addition to the idea that, gee, maybe then that person won't like me or everything, if I start a conflict, and this was true in my household, I had no idea where it was going to go. You know, in other words, in my mind, I could say something to my father that was, you know, maybe it's this little bit confrontational, but nothing that I thought was going to be bad. And he would just go off the deep end and start screaming and yelling. He, he was definitely a rageaholic. And so when you've had that kind of thing in your past, you become very leery of wanting to confront because you don't know whether you're going to be able to keep it under control. You know, it's like a you know, like, like an emotion version of a nuclear reactor, you know, you, you, you want the nuclear reaction, but you don't want it to melt down. And in my house, I could never guarantee where that meltdown point was. And so it made me very leery about confronting because of that. And I think it's a matter of trying to, to find that balance of, of being true to yourself, uh, uh, but to find a way to do it. You know, my one of my other programs, they always say, you know, say what you mean, mean what you say, but don't say it mean. And, and that was another one of the problems I always had was I would not, I would, from fear of confrontation or something, I wouldn't say something when I should have. And it would build up and it would build up and it would build up. And then I couldn't take it anymore. And I would express it in a really angry way and, and inappropriately. And then what happened is that just reinforced, oh, my God, I can't do this. Well, no, the reality was I should have done it earlier when I could have done it in an appropriate way. But I end up waiting until I blow up about it in an inappropriate way, which then just reinforces I, sh I shouldn't talk. No, I, I, should, I should speak my mind, but I should find a way to do it in an, in an emotionally uh, less charged way as an adult and things like that. So it isn't easy because, like I said, you know, you're dealing with with a a chance that somebody's not going to like what you have to say as a result of whatever that conf confrontation is, and b you can't guarantee that you can keep that <laughs> you know that uh, nuclear pile under control and not have it spin totally out of control. So I don't know if that helps. Thank you. Thank you, Jason C. Anyone else with a question for John this morning? Star one to unmute. Carol G. Carol G. Anyone else? No need to fear. <laughs> I don't <laughs> But I try that out. Don't be That's afraid. Pretty good. <laughs> We're gonna like you <laughs> regardless of what your question is. And yeah, even sure if you want to criticize me. Okay. <laughs> and I'm sure it'll be helpful to many. Uh, questions are helpful to all of us. Right. Cheryl S. from Maryland. There we go, Cheryl. Good job. Good job. Okay, Carol G., go ahead. Thank you, Leah, and thank you, John. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Thank you so much. I'm Carol G., a recovered compulsive overeater. Um, I wanted to ask you about step nine. So, I've worked with quite a few people who have great momentum, 
they get that step eight list and then the action stops. Fear just consumes them and they either eat, unravel emotionally or disappear. Um, I was just wondering, can you share your experience on how you would use the directions to help somebody, I think, deal with that fear and stay in, st and stay in step nine and complete those, uh, those steps, please? Sure. Well, I'm a big believer that, and, and I think I've seen it over the years, there's this wonderful progression from one step to the next to the next to the next, so that by the time you're at nine, hopefully you're, you're in a place where you can begin them. Now, that being a real important key, begin, because I know uh, some of these have been a lifelong process for me, you know, you know, you know, if if one moves and ends up in different places, it's not easy to find the people you need to make amends for, et cetera. But um, part of it is is the idea of the steps before, hopefully having built some kind of foundation uh, for some of this. Uh, you know, like was just spoken about fear of confrontation. You know, obviously, even just making amends in the best way is still in one form or another a confrontation. You know, and just using the you know, almost you know, you know, dictionary uh, definition of that. Um, what I'm a huge believer for, you know, again, if if you're having trouble with a step, I always learn look and see if you've done the one before it correctly, and and consider that. Now, I believe nine is the one where there, you know, I know in other, you know, in the twelve and AA twelve and twelve it talks about one of the other steps being where the rubber meets the road. But in a way, this is uh, uh, where. You, you're dealing finally, you know, you're out of uh, the theoretical into the real world. I mean, even the fourth and fifth step, which were tough, they're bringing out memories onto paper and talking to another human being about it. But now you actually have to go suck it up and talk to people you've had conflict with in one way or another. And a lot of those people may, may you may have had major conflict with. And a lot of them you may... They may have done more harm to you than you did to them, and I remember bringing that up to my sponsor, my first sponsor, and he was like, "I'm sorry, John, we're not doing their their amends, we're doing your amends." And um, <clears throat> one of the real beliefs that I've said with sponsees is, um, "Break it up, break up your ninth step into, I can make these right away. I have others. I'm not ready to make these in the second group and then the third one the no way in hell am i ever going to make these amends list and if you can start to do the easy ones i find what happens is you begin to find it it'll gain momentum as you tick ones off of that first group some of the ones on the second group can start to bubble up and you go you know what i can do that and part of it is getting the positive reinforcement of going and making amends and, and you know i'm not saying that every one of my amends was taken well but a great majority of them are and you know what i realized is that people it, actually enjoy being magnanimous a lot of times, you know, to say, oh, it's okay. And, you know, reality, maybe it wasn't okay, but they see somebody coming with a genuine urge to, to right wrongs and clean up their side of the street. A lot of times it's, it's, it's hard to hold on to a resentment with somebody who's coming genuinely at you with that. So um, I think that that's one of the things I do. One of the other, this is just a little thing of a quirk of mine, is I always tell my sponsees, you go make the amends, you don't talk about that you're in a 12-step program. Because I think this part of people, well, I'm in a 12-step program and I have to go make amends. And then people are like, oh, so if you weren't, you wouldn't? <laughs> you know. But the idea of breaking them up a little, 
and to have faith that that this will go well. And and again, some of that just is faith. You know, like I said, the faith throughout the steps. You know, the faith that that you will get through a fourth or fifth step has been reinforced. The faith that these uh, some of these character defects will be removed uh, gets gets reinforced. Now, they may be at the eighth and ninth before a lot of those character defects are, but just the whole idea of, of reminding them to have faith in the process that that it will be good. I I can tell you, um, you know, most of the amends I made went very well. I felt so much better when I was done. I felt like I was. You know, I think it's part of feeling like you're a good person at the end of the day because you've cleaned up as much as you can. It's not to say you're going to not get your side of the street dirty again, but you're trying your best. And so uh, I'm a big believer in trying to break up that list and then try and get people to make start with the easiest one they can and then come back. And when they come back and say, so, you know, you didn't die, right? That wasn't horrible. You know, maybe we can keep moving forward. You know, and not the, you know, not that you fill them with the idea that none of them are going to be tough, but I think as it happens, it will begin to build its own momentum. I don't know if that helps. Thank you, Carol G. Cheryl S. Cheryl S., your turn. Yes. Hi. 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 Here I am. Thank you, Leah. Hi, John. Thank you very much for your presentation. Um, I the the list you talked about the um the fear character liabilities. I love that word too. I never liked um, character defects, and thank you for that. But um, do you have? Would you happen by chance to have a list that um, perhaps you could email? But the thing that I liked and stood out, I worked through many of um, my character defects from being in recovery for so long, um, not necessarily OA, but other programs. But there are a few on here that really stuck out for me, and I really appreciate you going down that list that you, as you did. The desire to be different, man, that just, when you said that, it rang so true for me. And then you started to elaborate on it, and I missed that part point. Uh, Can you sort of elaborate a little bit more on that, sure. John? Thank you so much. No problem. Um, what I and, I and and it took me a long time looking back at this. This is particularly happened in school where <clears throat> I if if I made myself different, then I could tell myself that that deep down feeling of being different was something that I generated myself. Now, the reality was, no matter how I dressed or how I did things, I always felt different. I always felt less than. I always felt all those things. But that was a pretty intolerable feeling. And so by by building this, this false facade of I'm the one who's making myself different, it made me feel better that I was the one doing this and that I... You know, the reason I'm so different is because I want to be different. You know, if you look especially, I mean, and then some people want to be different. And there's nothing wrong with that. But especially at the time I was dealing with that, you know, high school kids, they all want to fit in. And they all want to not feel like the ugly duckling or the outsider. And yet I always did and always was. And um, 
and it's it's a pretty bad feeling. So I would I would convince myself otherwise. I was I always joke uh, that I always said that the uh, the smarter you are, the more the convoluted the head games have to get. You have to play with yourself because in some ways you know better. And so for me, it was about the the the, the desire to be different was a way to shield myself from the real feeling which which was that I was different and I was I never when when it was about being different it was never comparing in a favorable way it was always I'm less than I'm the freak I'm this down to that so I don't know if that helps oh yes it does thank you very much okay thank you Cheryl S any other questions this morning this will be our final invitation for questions Star one to unmute. Hello, I have a question. Is that Yolanda? Hello. Yes. Who who said I have a question? Who was that? Okay. And your name, please. Patsy. Pat P. Anyone else? Hi, my name is Kathy C. I have a question. Kathy C. Thank you. Anyone else? I'm not sure if you'll have time, but this is Kathy Joe. Kathy Joe. Excellent. Okay. Let's start with Pat. I didn't catch it. Yolanda F. There you are, Yolanda. I thought I heard you in there. I got okay. it. Okay. All right. So let's start with Pat P, please. Um, this is Patsy from Minnesota. And my question, I think I missed the presentation, and I think I had the wrong uh, time time zone. I tuned in at 8.30 Central Time. Did I miss the whole presentation? Is there any way I can um, get it back? Yes, of course, Pat. You can uh, listen to the presentation in its entirety at the conclusion of this recording by calling 712-432-5203. You're going to use the same conference code. And then when prompted, you'll press zero pound and that will access our most recent recording, always does. And, of course, you'll be able to listen to this presentation all over again. Thanks, Pat. Kathy C., your turn. Can you repeat that number, please? I sure can. 712-432-5203. Thank you. You're very welcome. Kathy C., Thank you, Leah. Hi, this is Kathy C. from Montreal, Canada. Uh, my question is, how do you run somebody through um, a tenth step when um, their, um, one of their you know, character defects is always in fear, being fearful? Thank you. Oh, well, <clears throat> um, that's a good question. Um, well, you know, one of the things I've always said, you know, when you're dealing with a 10th step, it's always something, you know, from the past usually, of, you know, uh, uh, that nothing in the, our past can hurt us, that nothing uh, uh, just looking at uh, 
can do anything but help. I mean, I've always, you know, said the, <clears throat> you know, the things in the past won't hurt us. It's it's how we react to them that could hurt us. You know, in other words, if I'm dealing with something I've never, you know, it's been in my past and I've never made amends for or had, had a problem with, um, uh, it's not going to hurt me to look at that and, and to think about it. But what will hurt me is, is if it's in there and it causes me to go out and eat or, you know, to do something else self-destructive. Um, but, you know, I think it's about the idea of, you know, I, I always say the 10th step was the thing I learned to do the best, the quickest, because I came, I came from a family where if you admitted you were wrong, you were fair game, (laughs) you know? And so I, in the, you know, early days before program, I would, I would go out of my way. No matter what I did, no matter how wrong it was, I'd find a way to convolutely, you know, give you the reason I did it and why at the end of the day, you were wrong. Uh, I was right for me being a jerk, <laughs> you know, when the reality was, no, I was just the jerk. And when I came in the program and I got to see, wow, all I have to do is admit, you know, geez, I'm sorry, I screwed up. I, I'm, I really don't want to, and I'm sorry I did. And, and how, how wonderfully freeing that was. But, you know, for some people, if you come from the kind of household where admitting that kind of thing made you a target, it is hard. But it, part of it is, is to, um, try and get over the idea that we're now in a safe environment. This is a safe environment to get to get these things out and to promptly admit things is is a good thing. I mean, I, I suppose there's times when it isn't, and with maybe certain people, but I find that um, for the most part, it, promptly is a great thing because it it doesn't allow things to build up. I mean, again, I still will have things happen, and as soon as I realize it, I want to take care of it. I it's the other thing that happens in a long time in program, is is it isn't like you um, uh, you. You you take care of it because that's what the program says. You have this incredible desire to take care of it because you don't like the way you feel when it's sitting there up in the air. You want to go take care of it. And for me, you know, I think the thing I'd say about it is is to try and um, assure them that it's a safe environment to sort of look at these things and and to get them out there and then to decide how best to handle uh, you know a quick amends or you know i don't know if you're talking about an actual you know like end of the day amends thing or uh you know uh you know uh situation like that but you know the idea that we can be safe in doing these things and you know obviously if somebody's really fearful of that kind of stuff chances are it's because they came from a, an environment where doing so made them vulnerable i don't know if i got that exactly for you yes that's perfect thank you so much okay thank you kathy c and if you're not speaking if you could please mute Thank you. Kathy Joe, your turn. All right, this is Kathy Joe in Minneapolis. Thank you for sharing. And I recently did a ninth step with my husband and I'm in the ninth step right now. And I've had many um, ninth steps I've done in this process that were wonderful. And you mentioned that even though you might have harms from the other person, to still do it, focus on ourselves. And that's what I did. 
but um, I had two things going on when I did it. Number one, I was um, mortified by my list and my behaviors. And you used the word, a character defect of catastrophizing Mm -hmm. our behaviors. I feel maybe that's what I was doing. And the second part is, I did it, he received it well, but it did not feel warm and fuzzy. It did not feel like God loves us and is shining down on us. It was really super hard, and I was just wondering if you've ever dealt with that, and I'm hoping that God will still come in. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I'll, tell you the, I'll tell this story. I, <clears throat> my first example <clears throat> of, of somebody making amends was I, I got sober in this place that had was like a clubhouse. There was a, we all got to know each other very quickly. And a guy who got sober about the same time I did was this guy named Stan. And he, he would talk at every meeting about he was a house painter and he had worked for his best friend since childhood. And right near the end of his drinking, he ended up quitting on his best friend and left the guy in a horrible lurch. The guy almost lost his business and all this stuff. And he kept saying, i got to go make this amends. i got to go make this amends. And so, and we kept hearing about it. And then finally one day he comes in and he's whistling and he's all happy. And and we're like, well, what's going on, Stan? And he's like, oh, I finally made that amends. And I, I looked at him and said, wow, from the way you're acting, it must have gone really well. And he said, no, as a matter of fact, he told me to go screw myself and hung up. <laughs> and and I said to him, well, why are you so happy? He says, because now it's his problem. And and, and I thought about it and it was true. It's not like it's not like amends or the you know get out of hell free card, but he genuinely did all he could, and and you know, and to realize that that's all he can do, and he's got to he had to let go of the results. He you know the results are the results, and um, and it's not easy. I, and I think a lot of that co- comes down to expectation. You know what what was I expecting? And, and you know, I remember my old sponsor saying, you go into these with no expectation. If you want to go into expectation, go into expecting, expecting the people to curse you out and, and not accept it. Then everything, anything that, that better than that, you're going to be happy with. And I, and I got what he said and, and, you know, very few of them were, and yeah, a couple of them were cold, slightly cold, you know, and I, you know, a couple of them, the guy would uh, <clears throat> enumerate, other instances of things I'd done that maybe I hadn't thought of or whatever. And you just have to sit there and be willing to go, yep, you're right. You know, because this was about me cleaning up my side of the street. I remember one of the great convoluted things I said, my, my first sponsor was, well, this guy and I, we had this big thing and I was definitely right. And he was definitely wrong. Uh, I mean, this is a thing that's absolutely, absolutely true. It's not a, an opinion thing. I was right. He was wrong. And if I if I uh, apologize to him, then I'm going to reinforce, you know, his erroneous beliefs. And I don't think that's right. And my, my sponsor laughed. He's like, you know, John, we're again, we're doing your amends. We're not doing his. And, and again, what I would just say about it is, you know, and this and in everything in life, it's all about expectation, you know, and. You know, that thing in in the big book about, you know, my degree of serenity is inversely proportional to the distance between what I think something should be and where it is. And, uh, you know, I guess it was exactly the way it was supposed to be. And maybe it wasn't the way you, you thought it should be. But, you know, obviously that's the way it was meant to be. Thank you, Kathy Joe, for your question. And our final question for this morning is from Yolanda F. 
Hi, thank you, Lady. This is Yolanda F. from New York. Um, my question is, well, first, thank you so much for all your words. I appreciate it here and everything. And my question is um, about the person um, going through step four, because uh, I've had this experience and so I have my sponsees, that um, get fearful and pick up during that just writing out the thing, uh-huh. not even getting to that. Um, could you give um, some kind of advice or something on that, please? Thank you. Sure. Um, yeah, I think one of the things is to, is to uh, as a sponsor, is to let them know that you're there and want to know how the thing is progressing, if they're having problems. In other words, to hopefully they'll talk to you before they pick up and say, Jesus, this is getting really hard and everything. As a way for me as a sponsor to help sort of uh, you know, talk them off a ledge, maybe in some cases, or at least to, to reassure them that eh, it's going to be okay, and and to you know, and to remind them, uh, uh, you know, one of the things I always say to my sponsees is there are twelve discrete steps. There's no such thing as a four, five, and an eight, nine. You know, there's a fourth step, and then there's a fifth step. There's an eighth step, and then there's a ninth step. And the reason I say this, I tell all my sponsees, when the fourth step is for you to get it out on paper for you to look at. The fifth step is another thing, and that you should never, in my opinion, ever be writing a fourth step with an eye toward who you're going to give it to, because it will almost assuredly, even if it's only subconsciously, make you start to censor yourself. And it's so important for this to be a fearless and thorough inventory, and so that means everything's got to come out. You know, you got to scrape down to, to the bottom of the barrel and some of that stuff's not fun to look at yourself and it's certainly not going to be fun to be thinking about giving it away to somebody else. But that's where I think the one thing that can help is by telling them and reassuring them, uh, and I do, you don't have to give this inventory to me. I'm absolutely fine with it being given to somebody else. Maybe it's given to a clergyman. Maybe it's given to a, psychi- a psychologist. I gave one of my fourth steps away to a psychologist, and it was uh, it was actually incredibly helpful because I would be talking about things from my childhood, and he'd be saying, oh, do you see how you still do this or that? You know, And to God, to have a, a guy who's got that professional level, because professionals a lot of times can see things down an extra level or two that you or I as sponsors can't see. But that 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 they that by telling them they don't ever have to give it to anybody that they don't want to somehow can at least take a certain amount of the steam of pressure of of that off and make the fear drop a little. And it's the same with eight and nine. You can't, you know, uh, you know, they can't think forward on that. You know, they'd say, look, you just got to get this out in a fourth step. And and don't ever worry about it. We'll deal with eight and nine when it comes. And you know you can even say, hey, maybe you'll never ever make the amends. Don't worry about that right now. Only worry about the fourth step. And then the idea of reinforcing and reassuring them that all you're doing now is pulling out memories and putting them on a piece of paper. And for them to go from your brain to your hand through a pen to a piece of paper or maybe you know, your computer keyboard, <clears throat> it's not going to hurt you. But again, I said it earlier, what will hurt you is not getting it out and then going and picking up and doing tangible self-destruction 
because you're afraid of looking at that. Nothing that's happened to you can ever hurt you again because it's done. It's in the past. It's static. And you know what? It's going to be there whether you look at it or not. And so getting that out and looking at it is an important thing. And again, like I said, by by trying to convince them these are discrete steps that are done one at a time, that that is a part of it. And maybe, again, like I said before, the idea that sometimes I've always heard if you're having trouble with a step, maybe the one before it wasn't done right, maybe back up and say, am I really willing to turn my will and my life over to a higher power, even if that higher power is program or whatever? If not, maybe a little about why not? What are you afraid of? Are you afraid your higher power, this process, whatever's going to drop you? Do you really feel like you know the you know the hand of God will smite you when you write something out on a piece of paper? You know, and some of that can be in there, and maybe not even on a conscious level, but on some level of fear, and to reassure that this thousands and thousands of people have gone through this process and it has made them better. You know, I haven't heard of anybody who said, yeah, I bailed on a fourth step and it's done wonders for me. It's, you know, just like people who go out, nobody's ever come back and saying, wow, that was great. You know? So I don't know if that helps in any way. Yeah, that was perfect. You covered everything. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, Yolanda F. Thanks to everybody who asked questions this morning. And, of course, thanks again, John, for visiting us this morning on A Vision for You. Thank you for your fascinating presentation this morning. Thanks for asking me. Very helpful. And you can meet John Kay and many others, again, at the OA birthday party coming up January 13th through the 15th. This is a weekend celebration in Los Angeles, California, which includes speakers and panels and a day-long big book study from our friend in Winnipeg, uh, Canada. All this good stuff is happening at the LAX Hilton in Los Angeles, California. You can find out more information on the website, oabirthday.com. And let's close from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.